0: Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey Podcast. I'm your host, Yarrow Starak. Hi, this is Yarrow Starak. Thanks for joining me on another Entrepreneur's Journey Podcast. Today I have an interview with Timothy Ferris, author of The 4-Hour Workweek a book that was recently released and has become extremely popular because I think it teaches something that we're all very interested in how we can construct a life where we only have to work minimal hours to in order to establish an income so the rest of the time we can spend doing what we truly enjoy Tim has managed to construct a lifestyle exactly as he teaches and currently travels around the world doing what he personally finds pleasure in which includes a whole variety of tasks. He's been a, a, a world record-holding tango dancer. He does martial arts. He's been in some movies in Hong Kong and China. He, he's got an absolutely insane amount of a background story to tell. And I'll leave uh, Tim both in the book and this podcast interview to explain what he's all about. If you haven't had a chance to get a copy of the 4-Hour Workweek, I strongly recommend you do so. It's a great book, especially for people who are currently struggling in a job they don't enjoy and would like to create greater freedoms to do what they do enjoy, or for entrepreneurs who may be uh, trapped to the business they're running and don't have much freedom and have a sense of um, discomfort because they just can't leave their business run without them. Uh, It's a great book and a great manifesto for teaching you how to create those sort of freedoms. And Tim offers some very interesting insights both into his personal life and teaching how people can replicate what he's done. Without further ado, I'll introduce Tim and let you listen to the interview. If you are interested in more podcast interviews like this, there's more available at my blog, which is entrepreneurs-journey.com, or just do a Google search for Yarrow, Y-A-R-O. Okay, enjoy. Hi, this is Yaro Stark. Thanks for joining me on this podcast today. And I have a, a very special guest whose name you may have seen traveling around the Internet lately or and offline. Uh Timothy Ferris, or Tim Ferris, the author of The Four Hour Work Week, which is a book I just finished reading. Thanks for joining us today, Tim.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, uh, this book is literally everywhere at the moment. I, it's, it's certainly um, very prolific, is the best way to put it. <laughs> so you have to, uh, though, explain for the people that have not read it before and maybe haven't heard of Tim Ferris. Uh, what's uh, what are you all about and what have you done and and what's the book all about
1: uh sure well i'll try to give you the nutshell so uh, can you hear me okay first of all we're good yes okay great uh, so uh, I'm a guest lecturer at uh, Princeton University in high tech entrepreneurship, and over the last three years or so, I have traveled through uh, more than twenty countries automating both my myself, my own life, and my business so seeing to what extent it was possible to outsource and automate your life in a digital and a flat world. And uh, the combination of the content of my Princeton class as well as my experiences over the last few years, uh, really looking at things like virtual outsourcing and outsourcing your life, uh, is, uh, is the 4-Hour week. That's the content of the book. Uh, and it also contains case studies of people I met along the way uh, who have have really designed ideal lifestyles for themselves by understanding that there are three currencies in a digital world and um, in descending order of importance those are time, income, and mobility. So really using time and mobility to multiply the lifestyle output of your of your money, essentially. Um, and so, one thing I talk about quite a bit in the book is that uh, you know people talk about being a millionaire, but what they really want is not to have a million dollars in the bank, but the lifestyle that they perceive is limited to people who have a million dollars. And realistically, we can do that with fifty or sixty thousand dollars quite easily in today's day and age. So that that's the book. Uh, as far as my background, uh, some people often ask me, you know, what do you do? Which is, of course, the hardest question for me answer, uh, because what I do for income and what I do with my time are two very different things. Um, but uh, I compete as a, as a fighter. I've been national champion in kickboxing. Uh, I hold a, a Guinness World Record in the Tango. Uh, like I competed in Tango in Argentina for six months. Um, I've been on television in Hong Kong and China as an FBI agent in a hit TV series. Uh, I've been a, I've been a, a break dancer on MTV in Taiwan and uh, the, the this goes on and on and on, but uh, you know, I'm also the, uh, the founder and, and CEO of a company with sales distribution in more than 15 countries with uh, somewhere between 200 and 300 uh, full-time and contracted employees, so I do have a very strong uh, business side as well, um, and that's, that's the nutshell. And Actually, you know, one last piece of sure. background is I grew up... In a very uh, low to middle-income family, my parents never made more than fifty thousand dollars a year combined, and uh, you know I've been working since age fourteen, so I don't come from a, an extremely financially privileged background either.
0: Okay, so um, given then your background, you you have middle-income parents. What point in your life did you realize that you maybe didn't have to, you know, work terribly hard in order to live the the kind of lifestyle you want to live? Because I'm assuming you you weren't born with this insight, and you didn't go straight away and create this fantastic lifestyle, you had to learn that through experience. Would that be right?
1: That's absolutely right. And I think it began with a book I read when I was 15, actually, by Dan Kennedy called uh, How to Make Millions with Your Ideas. and It exposed me to things like private labeling and licensing, things that I had never considered before. I began to realize that it, it was possible to separate income from hours, so you didn't have to work for an hourly or an annual rate. It's been an evolutionary process for me. Uh, I think another point was when I uh, was at Princeton, I worked for $8 an hour in... A library attic, <laughs> and uh, there, was, there was no heat, there was no uh, ventilation whatsoever, and it was a miserable experience, and uh, drawing back on what I had read in a few interviews I had done uh, for different magazines, I, I actually formed a seminar to teach people different accelerated learning techniques, mnemonics, things of that type, and I charged $50 per person, and ended up making uh, more than $1,500 in my first seminar, which was three hours long. So I realized at that point that this could actually work. And uh, the limitation on that model with the seminars was, of course, that if I didn't license it, and I didn't find it terribly interesting after the first few weeks, uh, if I didn't license it, it still required me to be present. So I began looking at ways of productizing that expertise so that it would be more scalable, so that I could sell... A thousand dollars as easily as I could a hundred, or even by extension, sell a million dollars as easily as as easily as I could a thousand. Right. And I really didn't put those principles into practice until uh, I would say 2001, 2002. So it took me some time to actually actually sit down and implement them properly.
0: You're you're 28 or 29 years old? 29. 29. Right. So you're uh, you're like me. I'm 20, turning 28 this year. So I mean to even get to that point at this young age is quite <laughs> it's good to have that realization from the early days. I'd hate to be, you know, realizing that we, we're not after self employment situations by the time you hit our fifties or something like that. So
1: yeah, very true.
0: Yeah. Um I'm curious though, I mean obviously the the principle here is to have a four hour work week and there's a right. lot of people I know from my listeners and my readers who they're they're at usually a crossroads. They definitely have a strong interest in entrepreneurship and running their own business, but they're trapped in, in full-time jobs. And that, you know, the standard story that is that they, they work very hard during the day. They come home and they're too tired to do anything else. Now, I mean, I've read the book, so I've got your advice from that for the people who are, who are employed. But can you give just a, a nutshell explanation of what you do teach people who are in that situation in order to start creating some of those freedoms so that they can essentially work less and play more or, you know, live the, the kind of lifestyle that you're talking about?
1: Uh, sure, absolutely. So if you're in a full-time job that uh, you perceive is requiring you to put in 80, 90 hours a week, it's very hard to develop the entrepreneurial income sources uh, that I talk about in one section of the book. Um, uh, the the principles can be applied even if you remain in your job, but certainly the automation of income is much easier if you do have some type of muse, as I call them.
0: Explain a muse. Explain a muse. So,
1: so a muse, when people say I want to start a business, I find the term business to be too ambiguous. So because a business could refer to a lemonade stand in the same way that it refers to a uh, a big five oil conglomerate so i find it too amorphous to be of use uh, so you you can start businesses to change the world like a body shop you can start businesses to ha- to have them acquired or to reach an ipo uh, but in our particular case i limit the the scope of business to a vehicle that provides the income necessary to actualize your ideal lifestyle in terms of of having and doing. Uh, so what is your target monthly income? Uh, that is, you know, if you want to have an Aston Martin DB9 and go to Fiji once a year and have X, Y, and Z and do X, Y, and Z, you know, what is the average monthly cost of that and then what is the most efficient cash flow source to get you to that figure? And that's a Muse. The only purpose of Amuse is to free your time and satisfy your financial needs and wants as it relates to that target monthly income. Right. Uh, So the first steps that you need to take, uh, of course, number one, is to define that target monthly income. So trying to get to the four-hour work week before you define your desired outcome is is a futile exercise. You really need to take a step back uh, and stop reacting uh, to overstimulation so that you can reassess your direction and what you're spending time on. Um, So a, a very easy way to create that space to begin with is... Uh, and this would this be an example of elimination versus organization. So I'm, I'm not a very strong pro- proponent of time management in the traditional sense because I feel that it doesn't scale. There's a limit to, to the number of tasks you can put in Outlook Calendar um, and the number of things you can consume and digest similarly in a day. So I focus on elimination. So uh, one concrete example of that is limiting the number of times you check email per day and batching that. So what I mean by that is you you could create an autoresponder, and this is sometimes called vacation autoresponse, that tells everyone who sends you an email, dear all, in an effort to uh, escape the inbox and get real work accomplished or because of pending deadlines or increased workload, I'm currently checking email at 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., whatever your time zone is. Uh, If you need an urgent response before one of those two times, please contact me at, and then you provide your phone number. And uh, uh, thank you for your understanding this move to effectiveness and efficiency so I can serve everyone better. And what that automatically does is it creates the breathing room to focus on, first of all, defining what your target monthly income is and what your target lifestyle is. Secondly, reassessing the vehicle, i.e. your full-time job, to see if it's getting you closer to that. And then uh, in all cases, both with your full-time job and ultimately the business that you create, the Muse is doing a very strict 80-20 analysis and identifying what the 20% of activities are Uh, that produce 80% of your desired outcomes. So that outcome could be profit. So what 20% of my customers, what 20% of my activities, what uh, 20% of the people I associate with are producing 80% of my profit. Uh, And then ruthlessly eliminating the inverse of that, so the 20% of the people and activities that consume 80% of your time. And if you do those two things, even in a full-time job, uh, you can f- you can begin to focus on being busy, uh, being productive instead of being busy. Because most people, since they're in a nine to five office environment, uh, or they come from that environment, even when they start their own company, they believe that they have to be doing something at all times from nine to five. So they invent minutiae, and the, and those minutia begin to drive out the more important tasks within a job. Uh, so the, the four steps that I outlined in the four hour work week are the commonalities i 've f- found among people, both employees, uh, CEOs, and entrepreneurs uh, that has enabled them to have a four hour work week or some somewhere between a forty hour work week and a four hour work week, so ten hours, fifteen hours, whatever they choose uh, their input will be. And the steps are definitions, we talked about a few examples of that, target monthly income, the 80-20 analysis, elimination, which would be doing the inverse 80-20, so eliminating the activities and people that consume that time. Then you have automation and liberation. And I talk about liberation with employees, full-time employees quite often, because there's actually a broad spectrum of entrepreneurship between uh, full-time employee and full-time entrepreneur, uh, or full-time business owner. So I use the term entrepreneur to refer to someone just as the way that it was originally coined. So Jean-Baptiste J.B. Say coined the term entrepreneur to mean someone who moves resources from an area of of low yield to an area of high yield. And uh, that could mean that you're a full-time employee who simply negotiates a remote work agreement, perhaps one day a week, uh, and then extends that to two, three days a week so that you have the freedom to eliminate unimportant tasks or minimally important tasks. And then that could evolve naturally to being a moonlighter or someone who splits their time 50-50, perhaps using those remote those remote days to focus on their their own muses after they've eliminated some of the, the non-essentials, all the way to the full-time business owner. And I say business owner as opposed to entrepreneur because uh, most entrepreneurs are very good technicians. That's a term that Michael Gerber would use uh, from the e They're very good at doing a specific function, and they end up becoming business managers because they can't let go, and that's why you find entrepreneurs end up being run by their businesses, not the other way around. So your goal should be to be a business owner and have a business that runs without you so that you don't need to make the small decisions and you're not in the middle of the information flow as opposed to outside of it. So those would be a few things, a few concepts to keep in mind uh, as you're trying to make that migration from full-time employee who's too tired to do things at night to someone who creates time and is able to use it in the way that they deem most exciting or fulfilling.
0: Right. So just to summarize, so I have this straight and everyone else has it straight, it would be the 80-20 rule. So you're eliminating tasks that don't provide much output for you in your work, environment, Mm -hmm. and then slowly negotiating a means to work remotely and demonstrating that despite the fact that you do work remotely, you actually produce the same or even more output for the company you're working for, Uh and then that frees up some time to start creating some of these muses you're talking about in order to get some cash flow happening and then slowly reduce your dependency on your your full-time employment check for your livelihood. That, in a nutshell...
1: Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that would be one uh, approach. Uh, Just uh, some other options that I want to put out on the table for people to consider is uh, most employees, particularly good performers with valued skill sets, underestimate their leverage. So another very simple option would be to say, okay, I'm not going to check email. This is something you would basically propose to your boss. You say, okay, look, I want a 30% pay increase, and I'm not going to answer any email at night or on the evenings, and I want to spend Fridays at home at a home office. And if if you're in a position where providing that would be less painful than firing you, you know, nine times out of ten there's a way you can frame it so that you get that. Um, So I just want to throw that out there because, uh, you know, there was uh, a gentleman recently who uh, was an attendee when I spoke at the Web 2.0 conference in, in San Francisco where, you know, Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt were speaking. And uh, he said, okay, well, I'm going to try this, but if I get fired, I'm going to blame you. I said, oh, that's fine. You know, <laughs> nice. g- g- give it a shot. And I told him to ask for more than he expected to get. And he sat down. He sent me an email uh, about a week later, and he sat down with his boss. And this is amazing because he went way beyond where I would have gone. But he asked for three days at home per week. He asked for a pay increase. He asked to be judged on performance instead of presence. So his billable hours were converted into completed projects. And he asked for a whole laundry list of about 10 things. And then at the end of his email, he said, miraculously, they agreed to all of it. So don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't underestimate your leverage. It's a huge pain in the ass and very expensive and time-consuming to replace good employees.
0: Yeah, you never know until you try. It's, it's amazing what can, can happen. I, I know there's, there's probably plenty of stories of the reverse where people have had a lot of trouble with their employers who are just, maybe they're not in a very senior position, so they don't have much leverage um, because of the type of work they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that circumstance, what's the, the, the best advice? Like if you're, you're clearly facing too much uh, opposition from your employer to get that sort of circumstance, is it a case of, well, you actually start looking for a, a different type of employment situation or, you know, actually quit your job? What's, what's the advice?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly you know elimination is often a much better solution to fixing a seemingly irreparable situation so for anyone who's ever been fired or laid off, they realize pretty quickly that it's it's usually not the nightmare world is over scenario that people who haven't been fired or laid off believe it to be. And quitting is isn't either. So you know, I have a chapter in the book called Killing Your Job because you know, some people want to know like, okay, well I have this boss, he yells at me, he gave me a Blackberry, he calls me on Saturday evenings and this, this and this. I can't do anything, what should I do? And I say, quit your job, what the hell are you doing taking that kind of abuse? <laughs> I mean honestly you know most people who are listening to this call are not in a third world country where they're not going to have uh, you know health care to provide for them uh, if they take a, a two or three week hiatus in between jobs to find a new one so I mean there, there are cases where that's the best option and um, even in in lower end positions it is very expensive to replace and train new people so I would uh, you have to present it you have to present it in the right fashion though i mean you need to present things like remote work as a business advantage a business solution as opposed to a personal perk so you would you yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't say i hate my commute and my you know bob the coworker, you know cubicle invader drives me nuts so i want to work at home two days a week that's that's a personal perk you would you would need to say instead number one take a step back and assess exactly how your performance is measured and what your contribution to the profit loss is if you have one and you could say okay you know i actually spent last saturday working because i my, my family was out of town or what have you and i was able to produce twice as many blowers, and you know of the time, and that was without any type of confirmation or back-and-forth email with with you or person's A, B, and C. So, you know, it saved me time, increased company profit. It also prevented uh, the type of back-and-forth, time-consuming communication that happens when I have IM interrupting me and phone calls interrupting me every three minutes in the office, and that really surprised me. So, you know, it saves me time, saves you time, um, and it actually, you know, will help us re- reach our new quarterly income goals you know would it be possible to take let's say thursday and try the, that one day just a one time experiment this week or next week and and see what happens and right. when you propose it in that way it's very hard for someone to, to just say no and uh, you need to learn how to ask good questions you don't mm. say you know can i do this you say you know i'd love to test this just once you know is that reasonable and it's 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 very precise I mean, when you ask these types of, of questions and you know so in you know, in, the, in the book one thing you might remember i talk about is always assuming the person's going to say no and having a contingency plan and you know a fallback offer as well as you know 3 to 6 uh, responses to the expected objections because they're going to come so when you start with that and you walk into a, into a, a a presentation a proposal Prepared, you'll usually come out with an improved situation. Very rarely will they just reject it out of hand if you present it in the right way. And if they do, guess what? You just need a new boss. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> right. So it's all about framing the question. So it's uh, what's in it for them, and not what's in it for you, so much. If you right. Can, uh, yeah. Okay. Given, we I think you just covered pretty much the core advice. That um, obviously there's a lot more to it, but really that's that's the core advice for people who want to start moving towards a four-hour work week. Mm-hmm. Um, You've, you've probably you know, had a lot of interaction with a lot of people who are trying to replicate what you're teaching there. Do you find that uh, the, the biggest stumbling block for most of these people is, is the mindset or a sense of fear than anything else? Because like, if you give them the tools, which you clearly do, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people who then don't follow through with the tools, what is the, the stumbling block, the roadblock?
1: Yeah, I think the roadblock is fear, uh, but it's not just fear. It's ambiguous fear. Um, and this is this is why i spent so much time on this um, when i'm you know when, I'm, when i was first you know counseling students and then uh, also my friends who who've gone through some very interesting careers and you know i have friends who sell companies for like 480 million dollars 850 million dollars and the existential questions don't go away what i mean by that is money doesn't solve most of the the problems the existential, the bigger questions that people have. So retirement's out. It's not a solution. And when you step back and you ask yourself, what's preventing me from creating, from designing the lifestyle that I want now, as opposed to 30, 40 years from now, you usually come up with a number of things. And it's very important. Uh, Just like goal setting to be effective needs to be very, very precise and measurable. What I call fear setting is analogous to that but applied to fears. So as soon as you define fears very, very clearly, and I'll give a personal example, you tend to be able to overcome them. And so in my particular case, I reached threshold in mid-June, 2004, and I was working 90-hour weeks, and I realized it was unsustainable. I had gone through three very good relationships and and destroyed all of them because I was too consumed by my business. And yeah, big bummer. And, you know, it was a real wake up call for me because I realized that my life and the business couldn't coexist at that point. And I took a step back I, and I, I decided that I wanted to take a, a trip to London to decompress, pull myself out of that environment, that speed addicted environment, and uh, really reassess how I could either redesign my business or shut it down. And before I took that trip to London, because it was going to be a four week trip, I was just like, oh, my God, it'll never work. You know, I can't leave. I check email 200 times a day. How am I going to take a trip to London? What am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about my apartment? You know, what am I going to do with all my furniture? And there's just excuse, excuse, excuse to put it off. And what it came down to was I had a fear of the unknown. So when I actually sat down one day, in uh, you know what was the epitome of my you know don't happy be worry phase <laughs> uh, I sat down and I was like, you know, what's the worst thing that could absolutely happen? And I was like, okay, so I leave, someone breaks into my apartment, steals some of my furniture. Okay, fine. You know, someone steals my identity and I lose what's in, let's say, one of my bank accounts. Okay, fine. You know, I'm traveling abroad and I come to the conclusion that my business can't coexist with my life and I shut down the business. Okay, fine. Uh, and when I looked at You know, What are the worst things that could happen? And if all of those things happened, what would I do to recover? That's the most important second part. So what are the steps I could take to recover? What would I do? Like let's say that I'm not projecting in the future, but let's say all these things just happened yesterday. What would I do today? And as soon as I started asking those questions, I realized that the, oh, my God, my life is over scenario really wasn't that bad. It was actually quite easy to recover from, and it would take a little bit of, of effort and time to get back to baseline if that's what i wanted but i already had the experience i knew had to i knew how to resume my current path later if that's what i decided to do um, and I've seen that again and again with, uh, for example, I have a friend, investment banker, another friend who's a lawyer, and uh, they both were like, oh my God, it's going to look terrible on my resume. If I have a gap, it's going to be a disaster because they wanted to try their own businesses. And they both tried their own businesses, um, and uh, both of them ended up succeeding. But what was funny is even a year, year and a half later, they were still getting uh, job offers. In both of those industries, and they could they could they could pick up exactly where they left off, even with that resume gap. And uh, most people don't realize that you know the res- the resume is for you; it's not for somebody else. Um, so really, defining fears very clearly. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen if I considered doing X, and how would I recover it? How could I get back to where I am now if that's if that if that were to come to pass? Um, and that's why. Uh, One thing that I felt was so critical about uh, making the the book accessible to people uh, is really expanding their comfortable sphere of action. In small baby steps, um, so you have these comfort exercises that i that I propose people to, uh, take advantage of, and uh, even at my princeton classes this isn 't something I talk about much, but um, you know I issue, a, I issue a challenge at the end of of each class for the last few years where I basically say, "Look, I know all of you listen to this and you might think some of it 's interesting, but almost all of you are going to walk out and do exactly the opposite so here 's what i 'm proposing you know, take one principle and apply it in this way, or you know try to get a hold of." Three celebrities who are impossible to reach, and uh, get them to answer a question you want them to answer. Uh, and whoever does this in the most impressive fashion gets a free trip around the world anywhere they want. And it is amazing. Two things are amazing. The first is everyone says, oh, my God, sign me up. I want to compete. And then out of a class of about 60 people, uh, three people will actually do it. That's the first because they they expect that everyone else is going to do it. They overestimate the competition and underestimate themselves and end up completely shooting themselves in the foot. So about three people of 60 will try it. And then of those three people, just to give you an example, last year they were able to get in touch with people like George Bush Sr., uh, the CEO of HP, Comcast, uh, Goldman Sachs—it uh, just it, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Just because they're willing to try it, um, so you're um, really being willing to test and then evaluate the worst-case scenario you know, uh, realistically and coping to recover. That would be that would be a long answer to a short question, but yes. <laughs> no, it's good stuff, Tim. Um ambiguous fear is a very bad thing and it's inactionable but as soon as you define it you can overcome it
0: yeah it's it's and i can see you're quite passionate about helping people do that which leads me to my next question is when did you sit down first initially and decide you wanted to write this and help people with this area of their lives and and what's you know your grand purpose with all of this what's in it for tim and, and what's in it with you know the bigger picture
1: well there, there are a few things uh, you know i I've always enjoyed writing, and I've I've studied with some good writers, but um, never planned on writing a book. Uh, I actually find it very hard to write. I find it very difficult to write. Uh, I was in Argentina preparing for the World Championships in tango, and I did my class, uh, my lecture at Princeton remotely via phone, and I had just tons of follow-up email, because it was the first class where I really talked about my concept of lifestyle design as a replacement for long-haul career planning and I really dove into a lot of the, the, the principles and ideas that I now teach there every semester there were tons of questions and then uh, one student because I, I wrote back to him and I said man you know I have about 30 pages of, of email responses I've already written seems like I really hit a nerve here and and he wrote back and he was like yeah well maybe you should just put it all into a book and be done with it ha 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 and uh, I think that's how a lot of businesses start. You know, it's like, oh, that'd be really funny if, ha, ha, ha. And then the idea just doesn't go away. So that's how the book started. It just wouldn't go away. The idea was keeping me up at night. And uh, so I put together a proposal, did my homework, sent it to Jack Canfield, who's who uh, who I recruited as a mentor of mine, you know, five, six... How did
0: you do that, by the way?
1: Okay, I can, I'll tell that in one second. So okay. I, I, I sent him proposal and basically said, Jack, you know, am I completely full of crap or is there something here? And then he said, No, I think you have I think you have something here. And he made the necessary introductions for me to get an A list agent and then we sold the book. It's very easy to sell a book if you get an A list agent who behind you. Um, so I'll answer the grand plan and then I'll tell you how I got Jack. Okay. <laughs> um, the grand plan for me is to have a huge disruptive effect with the book meaning that it catalyzes an enormous backlash against uh, an overworked culture that I think is just out of control. Um, because you know, more hours does not mean more productive, uh, and you know, more connectivity does not mean happier or more successful. Um, I, th- I think things are really out of control. Uh, I mean, the, the the average work week is now 70 hours. Uh, Forbes reported that recently. And uh, it's just going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse unless people take some very dramatic and, unco- and, and uncommon steps. So th- that's the bigger that's the bigger picture. I want this book to be a, a manifesto for people. I really want it to be a movement.
0: Okay. But taking taking that a step further then, given that disruptive effect happens, and obviously people reduce the amount of work they're doing. Uh-huh. Presumably, they're getting happier as a result. Right. That's that's obviously a, a big goal out of it. Do you think that would result in a cultural shift in some way that that may have a, an even greater effect than necessarily on a micro level?
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. No, no, no. My uh, very big goals. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think that it will it will help take the concept of a results-only work environment, which has already been implemented by companies like Best Buy. Uh, and in some cases like Netflix, where you can work whenever and wherever you want as long as you, you hit certain performance goals, I think that it can help get that to the tipping point where companies will have to adopt that to compete against each other. And so, you know, I've spoken at Google, I've spoken at PayPal, I've spoken, I've been invited to speak at some of these, these innovative companies here in Silicon Valley because of that, and I, I, I see this taking a much, having a much greater effect than uh, than just on an individual personal level. I think it can have a huge institutional effect as well, and even a governmental effect. I mean, I I won't even get into that, but I mean, as far as you know, mandatory unpaid vacation days and things like that, I mean, I have very grand plans for this, um, but one step at a time. So um, <laughs> as far as, you know, what's in it for me, I mean, there's, there's a lot in it for me, but, uh, you know, just seeing the ideas implemented and... Recognized in some cases for, I think the value that they offer is 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 huge for me. Um, because I've seen it on a micro scale in the Princeton class, and I wanted to get, I wanted to magnify that effect on a huge national international scale, and I think I can do that. So as far as how I got Jack, I'll keep it short, um, just because I know I know we don't have too much time left, but. Um, I volunteered with a not-for-profit group called the Silicon Valley Association of Startup Entrepreneurs here in Silicon Valley. So it's a not-for-profit uh, that focuses on fostering entrepreneurship. And they always have very good entrepreneurs you know, titans of entrepreneurship and CEOs, et cetera, speaking at their events. And a very good way to meet these people is to volunteer with with one of these not-for-profits. And uh, I volunteered to actually produce an event, so to be the program chair, essentially, for a big event that I was. was going to focus on entrepreneurs who had created, you know, multi-million-dollar, in some cases, multi-billion-dollar companies with no outside financing. And uh, it was my job to recruit all the speakers. So I had the credibility of this not-for-profit behind me, and uh, I went out. I got people like the founder of Electronic Arts, uh, the inventor of the Chia Pet, if that means anything to you guys over there. <laughs> Sadly <laughs> enough, it does to me. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> no, no, the, the guy's brilliant, though. And... Uh, Really a brilliant um, distribution guy, uh, the the a guy named uh, Ed Bird who was the first person to bring creatine monohydrate to, to market, the most popular sports supplement of all time. Um, and then one of the other speakers I wanted to get was Jack Canfield, and it was very hard for me to get a hold of him because he gets bothered by everybody. So I bought a plane ticket, flew down to L.A. to go to Book Expo, which is the largest book trade show in uh, in the world probably in the country at least in the U.S. and I uh, basically stalked him. I just waited in a room where I knew he was going to be speaking until he showed up and uh, you know, walked up and stood right in the aisle in front of him and stopped him. And I said, Jack, if you don't know me, my name is Tim Ferriss. Um, I'm working for a, a really well-known entrepreneurial not-for-profit in Silicon Valley. I would really like you to speak at our event. Um, there are going to be a lot of incredible people there I'd like to introduce you to who are also at the same level as, as yourself you know I, i'm not sure if you'd be interested but i i want to i want to do this with you and he said okay He really didn't know what to say because i just kind of jumped out of a chair to pop up in front of him and, yep. and he gave me a business card and he's like, alright send me an email and you know, ten emails twenty emails thirty emails later uh, i got him to come down and speak at this event and which was very hard to do because his, his usual speaking fees are like thirty to fifty grand plus it's not easy mm-hmm. in any case I, I got him to come down and speak and we became friends and uh, we just kept in touch. So I've been, you know, I was I, I I really engaged in a conversation with him, and I was interested in what he'd done. I didn't pitch him anything. I didn't have any help. I wasn't asking for any help, but uh, I ended up being interviewed for his book, The Success Principles. So I'm in that book, and then I was also interviewed for his more recent book, um, You Got to Read This Book, which is you know about the mm. the books that have changed people's know, lives. That. Yeah. So I have a like a chapter in there. And uh, so finally, when I decided to do my own book, it was just a natural fit. So I knew him for five years or so before I ever asked him for anything. Um, just keeping in touch, you know, once every six months, every eight months, nine months, and just kind of following each other and what, what we were doing. Um, so that's that's how it happened.
0: Right, you had a relationship. Yeah, that's fantastic. And
1: that's, I mean, it's very similar to how I approached this book. You know, I, I had relationships with, uh, you know, a lot of the bloggers you've seen, Talking about the book, it was very similar. I, I, I made the effort to get to know these people because I found them interesting, and I was interested in what they were doing, you know, months before the book ever came out. Um, and uh, you know, it's funny because I get these uh, emails and phone calls like, you know, what's the best way to pitch bloggers? And I'm like, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> you, you find you find people you're interested in, you think have a lot of shared DNA, who would find your book a value, and then you, yeah. you you offer it with absolutely no expectations, and send it to them, and hope for the best. Ba- you don't pitch, really? Yeah, no, exactly. So, um, anyways. Say hello. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, well, we're almost at that point, where we've got to end this call, so I'm going to end with my, it's getting like to be a famous question now. Um, for the people listening to this call, who are right at the beginning, who haven't, really start any of this process of, of going towards either um, starting a business or reducing the amount of work they do at, at their em- employment, what would be your number one piece of advice to, to help these guys just start the momentum happening? Sure.
1: Okay, so the, the, the number one piece of advice is sit down and define in quantitative terms exactly what you need to uh, experience your ideal lifestyle in the here and now, and not in the deferred life plan of retirement. So sit down, and uh, there are there are actually uh, worksheets and calculators and everything that you can use for this on my website. It doesn't cost anything. Just, just go to 4hourworkweek.com. You can spell it however you want. I have 100 URLs for it. Uh, so 4hourworkweek.com, and you create essentially a spreadsheet of this is my ideal lifestyle. These are all the things I dream of doing in retirement. And then you calculate the average monthly cost. And when you do that, what's amazing is you realize that it is often much more inexpensive than you think. And all of a sudden, the idea of spending the most capable years of your life doing something that, isn't, that is anything less than extremely exciting becomes absolutely repulsive. And uh, that's the type of system shock the type of pattern interrupt that most people need to get them to take the first few steps. So really defining what your target monthly income is and your ideal lifestyle is. That would be my recommendation.
0: Right. And that's a much better shock than waiting until you get sick or depressed or something like that to take action. So. Absolutely. Okay, Tim, thanks very much for your your insights in this call. It was great to hear more background on the 4-Hour work week And I'm, I'm sure we're going to see more of both the book and yourself traveling around on the internet and offline.
1: So thanks for having uh joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time.